Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, would you join me in prayer as we begin? Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, God, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you soften our hearts so that we may delight in your presence? God, would you sharpen our minds so that we may discern your truth? And God, would you shape our wills that we actually may desire your ways above our own? We pray this in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So some of you know that we have been going through a teaching series on the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is really the, the essentials of what Christians believe. And it's the essentials of what Christians have believed for many, many centuries. It's not something that we're inventing in 2020, but it's really what the early church has always believed about Jesus Christ and about the gospel itself. And we're looking at it because we're looking at it in the sense of how it brings together Christians across denominations, across traditions, and across the globe. Because the gospel is centered on Jesus Christ himself, and there are Christians all around the world, but the question is, what unifies us? There are some differences between different beliefs, different traditions, different denominations, slightly different beliefs, but at the end of the day, a Christian is someone that follows Jesus. And so what we're looking at in the Apostles' Creed is trying to define and help us understand what those core essentials are, so that no matter if you are a Christian in the United States or you're a Christian in Ghana, there are a set of core beliefs that are supremely important, which is what we're going over this morning and these next couple of months. So you might say that, in other words, that, that Christians, they certainly believe more than what we define in the Apostles' Creed, but you can't say that Christians believe less than what we define in the Apostles' Creed. In other words, the Apostles' Creed is kind of like the, the bare minimum with which Christians believe. So if you're a Christian, Going through this teaching series, it's, it's a great review in terms of the core essentials, but if you're not a Christian, it's understanding, okay, I might not be a Christian, but let's understand at least what Christians believe so that we can understand what the different belief systems are in the, in the city as well as in the world. So to, to recap, if you've been here the last couple of weeks or so, we've been going through different phrases of the Apostles' Creed, and so far we have already confessed and taught on this part, which is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So that's where we've come so far. And for those of you who've been around, every time we take communion, we recite the Apostles' Creed to help us just remember what those core essentials are. So today, we're moving on to the next couple of phrases. And the next couple of phrases are that Jesus descended to hell the third day he rose again from the dead. So to be honest, this is a, one of the more difficult phrases in the Apostles' Creed. And perhaps even if you've grown up in church, this phrase that Jesus Christ descended into hell uh, might actually be kind of unfamiliar. So we want to look at in what sense do we want to understand that Jesus descended to hell, and in what sense did he, on the third day, rise again and resurrect? And interestingly, looking at why, why did the early church, why was this so important 
that it became part of the essentials of Christian belief. Because what we're saying is, what we find in the Apostles' Creed is really the most important parts of the gospel. So the question is, why then is this so important that we need to understand? So there are, first of all, a couple of different ways to interpret this, this phrase that Jesus Christ, after he was crucified, died, and buried, then descended into hell. So there are a couple of different interpretations, but there is consensus in the sense that Jesus Christ, after he was crucified, died, and was buried, did not literally go straight to hell. Now, this doesn't mean we, we don't actually confess these words because there is a real sense in which we can understand and sincerely and genuinely confess and believe that Jesus descended to hell, but not in the sense that Jesus, after he was died, crucified, and buried, went literally straight to hell. Because if we look at the Bible, we see that the Bible, that the hell itself is the place for eternal punishment. There's, there's no getting around that. That if there is someone who has lived and died, and if they do not have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, that the Bible is clear that there is a final destination for that person, and that place is hell. Now, there's a, there's a lot more to say there, and we're not going to answer all those questions in terms of the, the fairness of hell and things like that. But at the very least, what we're saying is that after Jesus died, was crucified, died, and was buried, that he didn't go straight there because it wouldn't make sense. If hell is the place where there's an absence of God in which there's, there's eternal punishment, then it wouldn't make sense for, for Jesus, who was completely sinless, who was fully God and fully man, for him, after dying, to go straight to hell. There's just no biblical evidence to, to really support that idea. But... At the same time, we can still understand what it meant for Jesus to, after dying, to descend to hell. And we get a little help here because some scholars have, have looked at some of the, the, early, the early versions of the creed. And in fact, some scholars would argue that the early versions of the creed actually say that Jesus descended not to hell per se, but what in the Old Testament, you would call Sheol, or in the New Testament, call Hades, which is the place of the dead. So, in other words, we can say that Jesus descended, after he died, to the place of the dead. In other words, he went where dead people went. He really did. He went to this place, which is, by the way, it's not, not purgatory, but this intermediary state that, that the Bible talks about, which is the place that people go when they die. So the point is, the point is that if Jesus was fully God and also fully man, that what we're confessing and what we're believing is that he really died a human death. He didn't fake it. The disciples didn't steal his body. That when Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, he died a fully, fully human death. That's what we believe. And we need to believe that because the salvation, the salvation of the world rests on understanding that Jesus was fully God and fully man. So Francis Beattie, a pastor in his exposition of 
Christ descending. So Christ dies, and then in a sense, he, he descends to the place of the dead. He talks about how for, for Christ to do that, if he was fully God, but also fully man, then for, for God, the creator of the world, to be willing to, to die and to go to the place of the dead, it's actually it's quite humiliating. For the God of the universe to enter into the same place that, that every human being enters when they die is quite humiliating. So we talk about the, humi the humiliation of, of Christ's birth, of him being born in really uh, impoverished con conditions, but at the same time, we can also say that his death was humiliating. And so this is what he says. He says that this brings us to the, to the deepest depths of his, of his humiliation. He remained in the state of the dead and under the power of death for a time. It is the midnight of his humiliation now. It seemed as if now, surely, the powers of darkness had gotten victory and that Satan had triumphed. Death, the penalty of sin, had laid him low, and the grave held him firmly in its grasp. He was really dead. His spirit had gone to God who gave it, and his body lay cold and lifeless in its rock-hewn tomb. So what Beattie is saying there, right, is, number one, that Jesus actually died. But number two, that he went to the place of the dead for, for a time, and seemingly, death held him there for a time. That the powers of darkness held Jesus in the place of the dead, but only for a time. So what does this, what does this mean for us? How does it, what does this mean for us practically in, in 2020? First of all, understanding, again, that Jesus fully died, but also understanding the distinction with which that presents Jesus to the rest of the world. In the sense of, in looking at Jesus in Christianity, we see really one of the most unique aspects of Christianity versus every other world religion or system of thought. Which is, in comparison to other world religions, you might say Jesus was a, a good moral teacher, and there were many other good moral teachers that walked this earth. But when you look at Jesus in comparison to all of those other religious systems of thought, you simply don't find a leader, a religious leader, a religious teacher who died for the people that followed him. Not in the same sense that, that Jesus fully died and, as we'll see, not just died, but rose again. So this teaches us the uniqueness of the gospel in comparison to all other systems of thought, and it also gives us a sense of comfort for those who follow Jesus, understanding that God is not just some far-off deity who just created the world and then left it, but rather is intimately involved with what goes on, and so understanding his death actually gives us a sense of comfort. And we learned about this in um, the Heidelberg Catechism. And for those of you who, don't, who aren't familiar with that, it's a series of questions and answers. And the questions and answers relate to a number of different life questions. And one question that it asks is, why did the creed add that he descended to hell? And, and this is the answer. 
The Heidelberg Catechism says, to assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Jesus' descent into the place of the dead. What does it mean for us? It assures us that in times of personal crisis, as we all go through, in times of temptation, which we all experience, by Jesus suffering unspeakable anguish, right? Fully dying a human death, especially on the cross, that gives us the, the assurance that we will never have to experience that level of pain if we're in Christ. If we are Christians and we understand that Jesus is the only one that brings about saving faith and reconnects us to God, then we can be assured that the level of pain and suffering that Jesus endured on the cross and in descending to the dead, we will never have to experience, ever. Ever. Not in this life and not in the life to come. That Jesus Christ, he was willing to experience that pain, meaning that God himself sympathizes and understands Every single human emotion, every single experience of pain, every single experience of suffering. No other religious teacher can, can claim that. Because he lived a fully human life and he died a fully human death. Jesus didn't go around and convolute his human life. He didn't try to avoid the hardest parts of human experience. As a Christian, we believe that in Jesus, God experienced everything that humans experience, even the hardest parts. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 says that Jesus suffered death in the fullest sense so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus tasted and experienced death in the same way that every single human being who has died experienced. So, in the, at the end of the day, although Jesus did not literally descend into hell, still in a very spiritual and real sense, he endured real pain, real suffering, when he was completely disconnected from God. And John Calvin says that surely no more terrible abyss can be conceived than to feel yourself forsaken and estranged from God, and when you call upon him, not to be heard. So Jesus on the cross and when descending to, into hell or to the, to the place of the dead, right, was the place in which Jesus' call for help was not answered. He was disconnected from the Father. And seemingly, for a period of time, it seemed like the enemy, Satan, had triumphed. He was dead for a time. So Jesus descended to hell and, but not only that, he rose on the third day. So why is, why is the resurrection or the rising on the third day of Jesus and not simply his death on the cross sufficient for the redemption, for the restoration of the world? Because oftentimes we talk about the cross and how the cross is central, 
the cross was, was for, for many, many centuries, the symbol of Christianity. But what we're saying is that without the resurrection, there is no victory. There is no victory over sin, and there's no victory over Satan. Because the resurrection is what certifies that there is actually victory in Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, as was read earlier, says that Jesus was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So what we see in the scriptures is this theme throughout the entire Bible that we come back to again and again is that in Jesus, there is victory. There's victory. So on the one hand, on the one hand, we would say that Christianity completely validates all, all types of emotions, all types of human experiences, that on the one hand, we're, we're called to be honest, we're called to, to lament before God, we're called to be honest and sometimes complain to God, but on the other hand, there's victory. So, in a sense, sometimes the gospel gets reduced to our own individualized, personalized sense of forgiveness. So I'm a sinner, I do bad things, and so Jesus on the cross and descending to the place of the dead is God forgiving your sin through Jesus. But sometimes what we forget with us forgetting that Jesus descends to the dead is the victory that comes with believing in Jesus. And the question is, what is Jesus victorious over? What, what, is, what is the victory about? Because if we only define the gospel in terms of, I'm a bad person and I get forgiven, then there's not that understanding of the battle that was fought and the victory that was won. And that's what we're saying is essential to understanding that Jesus descends to the place of the dead and he rises on the third day. So for those of you who, who don't know me, I have a four-year-old son, and his name's Eli, and he's taking an enrichment class after school. So he's in pre-K, and he's taking this, this class, and the class is about heroes. And so for the first week, the, the class had to kind of just design and draw their own heroes. But on the second class, they had each of the, each of the children, all, all about four years old, draw their heroes, but then secondly, draw the villains, the bad guys, as it were. So after teaching a little bit about good guys and bad guys, they, they asked the four-year-olds, Basically, what, what is a villain? What is a villain? So here are some of their actual answers. The, the teacher emailed us some of, some of their answers to keep a, you know, all the parents in the loop. So this is what my son Eli said. He says, the question is, what is a villain? And Eli says, they, they try to trick good guys and try to hurt them. His, his classmate June said, some bad guys tell you tricks. They make you feel your house is messy or split you in two. <laughs> if you get away fast enough, they don't get you. 
And lastly, um, his classmate Joaquin said that villains, they're, they're bad people. They try to stop good guys from winning and try to kill them. They pretend to be good guys to make them trust them even though they're bad. So there's a handful of other responses by the four-year-olds, but I'm telling you that story because remarkably, these four-year-olds really understand the drama and the battle of the entire world. Of the entire world. Which is that according to the scriptures, there is a battle on a cosmic scale. That the entire world is a battleground between good and evil. So on the one hand, we're confessing the, the goodness of God and the goodness of Jesus. But on the other hand, we're, we're talking about that in the context of a victory. A victory against, against whom? And the answer is against sin and against Satan. That there is victory in Christ over sin and over Satan, and even the four-year-olds get it. Because virtually everything that they describe the villains can do and what, what they can do and what they will do is everything that Satan does. They try to stop good guys from winning. They try to kill them. They pretend to be good guys to try to make them trust them, even though they're bad. And as June said, if you get away fast enough, they don't get you. All of that's true. All of that's true because according to the scriptures, there is this real battle. So it's not just a cartoon. It's what we're living in. So many of you know that there's been many types of uh, reboots and restarts of comic book characters and heroes and superheroes, looking at the, the world of Marvel, looking at the world of DC. All these different television shows, they're, they're all dramatic. They all have different plot lines. And it's, it's endlessly entertaining, right? There's, there's billions and, and trillions of dollars spent on engaging these stories and understanding the heroes and the villains and what happens. The different variations are, are infinite. So the question is, why, why are people so interested in hearing and seeing these stories of good and evil? And what we're saying is, according to the scripture, it's not just something that we're, we're reading about, and it's not just something that we're watching on the big screen. It's actually something we're living in. That in this present moment, right here, right now, there is a cosmic battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. That there is a spiritual battle going on as we speak between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. So the question is, for you, how is the kingdom of darkness, or how is Satan trying to, as the four-year-old Joaquin said, how is he trying to make you trust him instead of trust Jesus?
How is the kingdom of darkness or Satan himself trying to trick you? Because if Satan is really at work, then he is trying to manipulate, deceive every single one of us. Right here. So if our immediate response is, I don't know, or I don't, I don't see Satan working at all in my life, then you realize what, what that means. It just means we're blind to how he's working. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that Satan blinds people's minds, blinds us from the truth. So what we see in the gospel is that Jesus descending to the dead and rising after the third day is, in a sense, the decisive victory against Satan. So although today we still battle the kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of light, even though the battle rages on, the most decisive battle in the, in the entire war has already been won. That's what the resurrection teaches. That yes, Jesus fully died, fully descended to the place of the dead, and he fully won. That there is a victory in Jesus Christ that was won when he left the tomb, when he rose from the grave, which means that the spiritual battle that we fight today is just, it's simply the finishing blows. That the enemy is still working, he can still deceive, he can still manipulate, but at the end of the day, the Christian's duty and the Christian's job is to finish off the enemy. That even though he tr he's trying to deceive us, trying to manipulate us, trying to stop the advancement of the kingdom, that the gospel gives us the assurance that the victory, that the ultimate victory has already been won. And so the gospel invites us to join in that final battle. The final couple of battles which will give the complete death blow to the enemy in which the entire world will be res restored and redeemed in a way that we don't see now. And we see that Jesus' descent and, and rising, right, it has these cosmic consequences in which we see the goodness of God in which we see love triumph over evil, in which we see the kingdom of lightness, the kingdom of light destroy the kingdom of darkness, and we see and recognize that the entire world, in a sense, right, is still influenced by the kingdom of darkness. Which is why we see that sin is not just our own personal misgivings and, and wrongdoing, but we see sin in the structures and the systems of, of society. Why? Because behind the structures and systems of society lies the working of the kingdom of evil. So systems, structures and systems such as nationalism or ethnocentrism or greed or racism, all of that is influenced by the kingdom of darkness and Jesus invites those who believe in him to do battle and to war against those broken systems and structures. That's what Jesus calls us to. Not simply to show up on church, show up at church on Sundays, although that's good, 
but to do battle on behalf of Jesus, knowing that Jesus ultimately has already won that victory. And in order for Jesus to win that victory, he had to go to the place of the dead. He had to really die. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard about this coronavirus. People are wearing masks, trying to avoid this coronavirus. Some of you may have also heard about um, the doctor, Dr. Li Liang, who was really hailed as a hero because he tried to raise the alarm about this virus in China. And he worked at the, the hospital, and eventually his death was confirmed by the Wuhan hospital because for a period of time, he tried to send a, a message to fellow medics about the outbreak. This was at the end of December. Three days later, after he tried to warn people about this virus, the, the police in the country paid him a visit, silenced him, told him to stop. And so eventually, he returned back to work. And the, the doctor who was trying to warn people about the virus caught the virus. So the very virus that, that this doctor was trying to warn other people about, sadly, was the same virus that killed him, which is why he's, he's rightly hailed as, as a hero. And we can actually see a parallel between the doctor and Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ, descending to the place of the dead, trying to save people from the problem of, of sin and Satan dies in the grips of sin and Satan. The very, those very same elements of, of sin and Satan, Jesus is trying to save people from, trying to redeem the world from sin and Satan, and yet he takes that all upon himself when he descends to the dead. He takes on the sin of the world Seemingly, for a moment, it seems like Satan has him in his grips. But that's not the end of the story. Because on the third day, Jesus rose again. He was victorious. He dealt with the enemy in the enemy's territory. He had to go there to do battle with the enemy. If he didn't go there, there would be no victory. But because he went there... And because he was fully in the grasp of, of the enemy, of sin and of Satan, he was able to give the death blow to sin and Satan so that we can now live in victory. So that we can live in a sense of freedom that we would never experience without the freedom that Jesus bought for us by rising on the third day. In a moment, uh, my wife is going to share a short testimony in terms of some of the, the freedom that she's experienced through the victory of Jesus Christ. Because it's only understanding the victory of Jesus Christ on our behalf that we can then do that same type of battle right here and right now to finish off the enemy and to declare the victory of Jesus in this place. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this, that then comes the end, that when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put 
his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy is destroyed because Jesus rose on the third day. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes to, to the realities of the spiritual realm of, of how you have bought a victory that we could not buy ourselves, that you have won a victory that we could not win ourselves. Father, would you, would you show us that you were a God that was not just far off, but was willing to, to fully die a human death, to be humiliated in a way that you did not need to be. Father, we thank you so much for, for willing to do that on our behalf, to substitute yourself for us, to live the life we should have lived, and to die the death that we should have died. God, we thank you for the freedom that we, that we have in, in you, and we pray, God, that, that we would be able to tell story after story about how your victory impacts our life even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.